0: it is fascinating but you didn't put exorcist in your venn diagram earlier on your intersections but i'm going to- <laughs> i did pick up on that yeah <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's one of those words easier to write than just sorry, we're
2: gonna exercise you get the yoga people we wanting to do 5am yoga but yeah
0: you're listening to the occupational philosophers
2: with simon banks and john rice
1: And welcome to the Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast where we mash up a little bit of creativity, a little bit of curiosity, and a good healthy dose of philosophy each and every week. As always, I'm joined by my co-collaborator and co-host, John Rice from the UK. Hey, John, what's happening, man?
0: Hey, Simon, how are you? I'm very good here in the UK. We are in the throes of spring and blossom of bluebells. (laughs)
1: And just on the the back of the coronation as well, I saw some pretty cool-looking parties from friends over there, everyone out in the streets, high tees up the middle of the road and that type of thing. What's caught your curious eye this week?
0: I was caught by a recent article, very recent, which is about the research-backed benefits of improv comedy. And obviously, I was thinking back to our episode with the wonderful Neil Malarkey and everything that we enjoyed and learned with our chat with him. And uh, I'm just going to read some of these out to you because I thought this is fantastic. This is real people in white coats with clipboards actually discovering just how important improvisation is to the human brain. So let me just run through these. It activates the language and creativity centers in the brain. It promotes brain connectivity. It boosts creativity, reduces social anxiety, reduces uncertainty tolerance, improves confidence, and it uh, decreases stress. Oh, and it, it makes you more attractive to the opposite sex. No, I made Perfect. Up. The last one I made up.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, I was going to say, if nothing else, just have a run of it for that. So, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I was. that's quite a list of uh, benefits there. And this is all in the research. This is the new scientific body of text and and, uh, academic text and research that's come forward. So I thought that was uh, amazing. And I think we should get Professor Neil Malarkey as we will now anoint him (laughs) back Back on the show yeah,
1: at some point. I think to promote his new book. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You, because uh, you you use that a bit in your work, do you, Simon? A bit of improv
1: all the time, John. I think there. You know, we hear those words, energizers and icebreakers, which make some people cringe. But oh, the, the world of improv! There's so many fun things to do. And look, if you can enjoy yourself, connect with someone around you, and look, you sort of start to work out some of those muscles upstairs. And new new things happen. Yeah, I love it. I love the world of improv.
0: So, yeah, that was me. What about you? What's caught your eye?
1: Well, caught my eye. Let me ask you a question. What would you think might be the most discussed, explored painting of all time? What's first popped to mind? Oh,
0: uh, Mona Lisa.
1: Yeah, Mona Lisa, yeah, oh, which okay. we've spoken about before. And what caught my eye is a art historian thinks he has re-identified the bridge in the back of the Mona Lisa, which is the one over the Mona Lisa's uh, left hand oh, have I got it right hand one of her shoulders I'm looking at it now oh uh, yes one over her right hand shoulder and what takes my interest is people have been at this picture for almost what 600 years now if I think I've got about that right just imagine the the curiosity of just looking at this for so long I, there's sort of a magic in this picture it's hard to put your finger on but why do people? Why is it embraced so much uh-huh. in so many ways that you can stare at this picture for so long? So I'm just I'm just interested in the magic that this brings, this picture, and it's moodiness, and as you say, is she smiling, not smiling? We've talked about we've spoken about the shadow of the lips and the eyes follow you, one's in a different spot and all that type of stuff. But just the ability to look at something for so long and still find joy, still find mm. wonder in it. Yeah, I thought it was really, really cool. And also I like the town who says, well. Now that we've got the Mona Lisa, they're really, we've got the bridge really, really popular. And it says, there are plans in place for a hiking trail and a bike route near the bridge, as well as some good-natured gloating. Two other <laughs> villages nearby have laid claim to the Mona Lisa Bridge, including Buriano, apologies if I've said that wrong, which has erected a poster of the Mona Lisa near a sign leading to the bridge. And they said, there'll be some nice rivalry, we'll need to put a poster up too. So I'd like the, little, the local, <laughs> we've got the bridge, now you've got the bridge, but I just okay. 600 years of looking at that picture and we're still finding things in it. And the colours remind me of the backdrop of our guest today, uh-huh. the sort of Renaissance hues, yes, John. So uh, on that note, we have a guest today, John, always exciting. Who is the curious cat we have on this week?
0: Well, Simon, it's not so much a cat, Simon, more a curious fox. Our guest today Ooh. is a wizard philosopher who masquerades as a leadership advisor. He has a wealth of clients around the world, um, senior leadership teams of Fortune 500 companies uh, that he works with, like Microsoft, Toyota, Honda, Sony, Salesforce, KPMG, the International Institute of Research, and a host of others. There really is an incredibly long list. He's lectured at three universities around uh, topics such as systems and behavior. He's the best-selling author of The Game Changer and How to Lead a Quest, And his newsletter, which I quite like, is read by more than 11,000 folk around the world. In addition to serving as a leadership advisor, he is also globally in demand as a keynote speaker. And he works particularly well with sceptical audiences who've uh, seen it all before. And in 2016, he was actually awarded Keynote Speaker of the Year. So quite an impressive tally there. He lives with his illustrator veterinarian partner and a cat called Pi in an old factory in Melbourne, Australia and when he's not liberating the world from the delusion of progress he enjoys partaking in extreme sports such as reading sun avoidance and coffee snobbery a huge massive welcome to today's guest dr Jason Fox
2: hurrah oh, thank you oh thank you oh, oh it's really nice to be here and uh, what a what a wonderful elegant segue um. I've really enjoyed uh, sitting back and listening to kind of the the worlds of enchantment that you're evoking. So anyway, I'm I'm feeling warmly welcomed. It's good to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And look, what's caught your eye this week, Dr. Fox? Well, it's interesting as you're going through that. Um, as I was thinking about the bridge behind the Mona Lisa, I was reminded of this. There's this game called GeoGuessr. I have a friend who is a, a wonderful illustrator who loves this game. And there are people that will, What what how the game works is you essentially just get an image from Google Earth or Google Street View from a place in the world, but you don't know where it is and you've got to guess where the place is. And some people have become so good at recognising, okay, that's an electricity pole from Lithuania because of the way that the cables are connected there. Or that, you know, you can tell the difference between the, the stop signs in Australia, if you're in Western Australia, they're yellow. If you're on the eastern side, they're actually not yellow. So you you develop this visual acuity uh, and spatial location, which I think is quite apt. And I wonder if, um, I don't know if there's the equivalent of the geo Guesser who saw the bridge behind the Mona Lisa, <laughs> but um, that's not necessarily what's caught my eye this week. I'm I'm trying as much as possible, particularly with this exponential rise of artificial intelligence and so on, and the amount of content that we consume. there's something that's calling, I think, many of us. And that is this kind of more embodied ways of knowing, participatory knowing, actually being out there in amongst the senses. And so one of the things I've been noticing is just there's a particular quality in the air. We're getting crisp late autumn weather at the moment. And there's a quality of the light and the crispness of the air that kind of highlights the smell of the leaves and the petrichor and the aroma of the misty rain. And I'm just, I'm just trying to be alive to those moments as much as I can, because historically I've just been so stuck in my head thinking or plotting the next kind of things. And I'm just, um, I don't know. So what's caught my curious eye is probably just the subtle sublime of uh, nuanced everyday moments, if you were just to look at them in the right way and appreciate them in the, in the right light.
1: Yeah, it's so, it's so lovely and John, you the light, because it's so harsh in summer here, which you don't get in the, in the UK, but I literally said that same thing last week, went on a half hour drive, sort of a lot of waterways where we are. The light was about, you know, 10, 30, 11 in the morning, it was just so crisp and beautiful mm. and just everything shone in a way that it wouldn't normally, or you viewed it in a different way. So that, yeah, the beauty of those moments is, yeah, it is lovely.
0: Oh, this is getting very, very wistful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, right. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, wistful, wistful, that's right, that's right.
1: Now, John, uh, look, uh, you're thinking, oh, yeah, and I have six months of grey, so uh, <laughs> but even that has its own beauty, John, even that has its own beauty. Shades so. of grey. Shades yeah. of grey, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> that's, yes, that's
2: something completely different.
0: <laughs> and, Jason, where are you today in the world? We've got people listening in from different places, but where are you?
2: I'm in Fitzroy in Melbourne, Australia. I come from... Coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Kulin nations uh, here in Australia on NAM as we would um, refer to it in the Indigenous Australian languages. And I'm in my den in my studio. I have a nice, uh, during the pandemic, I kind of flexed very hard and setting up a studio uh, with microphones, cinema cameras and soundproofing and all of that stuff. So I have no natural light necessarily,
1: but uh, it's a nice little cozy den for good writing and good conversations. And it's a very funky part of town. John Fitzroy is a bit like Islington or uh-huh. you know, Camden or something. That Shoreditch. For your, or, uh, yeah, 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 for your reference as well. The London Telegraph
2: actually put Fitzroy in the top three most hipster um, places in the world, <laughs> alongside Shoreditch and I think it was Williamsburg in New York. So, ah, cool, cool. There we go.
1: Cool, cool.
0: Don't we share at this moment, Simon, that our guest Jason has a bit of a hipster beard, I'd say.
2: It's, I don't know. There are so many, there are so many imitators nowadays. Uh, this is the original, be, isn't it? This avant-garde is it? And, uh, yeah, that's right. so <laughs> I was having a beard. When I first had my beard, people were warning me um, in business. They were saying, you would not get booked as a speaker with a beard. I mean, you know. <laughs> anyway, I think we've come a long way since then.
1: Now, Let's imagine we're at a dinner party. We're at a dinner party. And look, we're always curious when you meet someone at a dinner party. You know, you've probably been a few and it can be a bit, oh, what do you do? Oh, okay. Who do you know? They can be a little bit stilted. So John and I have thought, look, if we're at a dinner party, we'd like to to mix things up a little bit rather than just, you know, hello, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an accountant. Okay, so am I. All that type of stuff. So Mm -hmm. we just did ask you that. So even though we are where you are, uh, we are interested in some different questions. So... Let's kick off our dinner party right now. Poured you a glass of Shiraz or something similar. Uh, Jason, what's giving you joy at the moment?
2: This is a really nice question. I wish I had more ready answers. I need to get better at um, noticing and relishing enjoy. joy. Probably the main thing, no, here's, here's an easy answer. We, we live with a cat called Pipe. At the end of last year, we also acquired a, a small chihuahua by the name of Snorri um that's s-n-o-r-r-i um that's an icelandic name um snorri and snorri gives me such joy oh my gosh yeah and this is probably common amongst anyone who has a pet dog i mean the way that a dog looks at you i want to be the person that snorri thinks that i am <laughs> it's just every no matter how down i get in my days because there have been some times where I've i've just you know, I have my ups and downs about things, and I just come back, and these little tails wagging, and I just melts my heart. I'm sorry, even just speaking about it now, yeah. So that's given me a lot of joy, <laughs> abundance
1: of joy. Thank you for asking.
0: That's very, very good. It's just making me think everyone needs a snorry in their life.
1: Yeah, it's a great word, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah.
2: Is there? A- it means onslaught, apparently. Um, onslaught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, very fitting. It's our little guard dog. We he, he sometimes gets a little bit territorial when people walk past them, and that triggers what we call debacles, where he'll he'll kind of be barking and trying to huff and puff and scare all the people away. And he's also been diagnosed as an introvert pessimist, which, um, which, is, which is lovely. Which, no, it's, it's called, my wife's a vet, right? So she went to a, an actual behavioral science, uh, vet, veterinarian. A lot of people think that dogs are optimistic extroverts, and that's just how we relate to dogs as an archetype. But um, our little Snorry is an introverted pessimist. Um, so, yeah. If it's right in at home, <laughs> so, <laughs> not that I'm a pessimist necessarily, more of a skeptic, more, more a or skeptic, a stoic. So, yeah, <laughs> or even so, say, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Does
0: that, and how does that manifest itself, Jason? Is that then he doesn't expect to okay. get some, a treat or something like that? He's,
2: <laughs> well, no, it's more like going out on a walk. He's more likely to think, "Oh, great, a walk," you know. It's gonna, and, and more likely to fixate upon the bad things and forget that he actually has a really good time on a walk. And by the time he's out there, he has a great time, but there's just the initial convincing um, <laughs> is a little bit harder. I see. And, yeah, in terms of, like, his own recovery time, like, he's, he's quite self-contained.
1: He just dozes uh-huh. does his own thing, whereas other dogs want to be kind of all up and amongst you. Ah. Sounds like... So it could be sort of like, um oh, I'll go over. I bet he won't pat me anyway, like, a bit like a pessimist. I'm just going to lie here. <laughs> yeah, be, yeah,
2: sometimes. Oh, he's Well, yeah, he's more, like, self-contained. Yeah, he'll, he'll just kind of sit there and <laughs> do his thing. yeah. I, he's, he's fine. You know, once you get to know him, like like any introvert, right, you know, you spend enough time, we open up, we warm up. It's it's wonderful. It's just um a lot of, uh, I guess, more extroverted friends, when they see him, they want to, like, just grab him and they love their loud voice and say, oh, you're so cute, and they want towering over him, trying to hug him, and he's not really that keen on that.
1: <laughs> well, I think this has been the best opening question we've ever had at a dinner party. So yeah, right. Uh, well, let's bu- thanks, let's, thanks. let's build on that. Let's fire um, away. Yeah. Let's,
0: uh, what? Is there any hobbies you're losing yourself in at the moment, Jason?
2: Oh, uh, I wish. I wish. I was actually thinking I need to rekindle some hobbies because I work for myself, and I don't know if you guys get this too. The the boundaries between work life and all the things it's all it's all blurred. It's all overlapped. I I think what I do is a hobby, but at the same time. When I start enjoying it, I feel guilty about it. And so I then start trying to do other work to feel productive. It's just, (laughs) I do enjoy reading. I mean, I don't know if that's a hobby. I genuinely enjoy, genuinely can get lost in the the worlds of emerging thinking, the confluence
1: of ideas. Yeah, I guess that's a hobby. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I would say it is. I would say absolutely. Now, maybe building on that, what or maybe even a who uh, inspires you now?
2: I there's a concept that's inspiring me quite a lot at the moment, and this is me speaking as a as a kind of jaded academic who then became a bit of a, a jaded speaker. I mean, I've had a wonderful time working in enterprise land, but there are some patterns that I just see, keep seeing repeated over and over. You probably see this too. There's a saccharine, shallow theater of innovation where people have a great time, but nothing actually changes because of the you know the way the incentives at work and what inspires me right now, though, is I went through this lens of complexity science, which just I just the more you get into complexity science, the closer it gets to something that, for desperate lack of a better word, is something almost spiritual. The way that you kind of see how life and living systems work and so on, and then I found myself really warm to mythopoetics, and that that is kind of the rekindling and use of myth and enchantment as vehicles to navigate complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity. And I'm finding there's something quite potent and powerful about that realm, the languages that's available, that allows us to navigate really challenging, complex domains more effectively than just rationality on its own. And so as a kind of way to augment sound rational thought, I think there's worlds within the, I guess you could call it the para-rational or kind of the mythopoetic and by extension, just generally, there's a book called Poetry Unbound by Padrigo Tuma that my wife Kim have got for me recently. Padrigo Tuma has a wonderful podcast. There is something about the exquisite distillation of phenomena, the, the kind of the aptness that a poet can bring that complements the vastness of philosophy. So I find with philosophy, your mind just can constantly expands and you kind of, you're open to yeah, all sorts of ways of seeing, but the poetic distillation where, where it can be just drawn into just a few words and just so apt, like um, how David White, the poet, says that uh, poetry is language to which we have no defense. And I feel like there is, yeah, um, that that's speaking to me, to me a lot at the moment. It's inspiring me a lot. Is
0: that, um? I mean, I'm very struck by your use of language. And, and you said there, you, I wrote it down, you were just saying, I like reading, I love the immersing myself in the confluence of ideas. And I read the, that you have the arch widget of ambiguity. I mean, there's a lovely turn of phrase and, and use of language that you have, no doubt informed by your reading and the philosophy coming together. And is that because you see that you can go beyond just an easy visual metaphor to help people make their way through things? Is that the idea? We might be getting too deep, too quick, Simon.
1: I, it, it, no, no, you're right. No, yeah, it, 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 it's a heavy I dinner just, party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have suspect, a, can, like, he's just
0: Jason's going to say camera more camera wine, camera. more <laughs> wine. <laughs> Jason, Jason's just thinking whether he could change seats.
2: <laughs> Do I have to sit next to this idiot all night? I no, I relish this question. This is, this is so good. I think the challenge is. I'm just tired of quick fixes and, and default thinking and ready answers to things. And there's also there's a, a bit of an occupational hazard, and it's partly the way the attention economy works is people gravitate to confidence, clarity, conviction, charisma, the folks with like a ready, high conviction around their, their own thoughts and ideas. And I find that those that are grappling with doubt that are kind of in the space of ambiguity, that, of not knowing, that is much more appealing to me and like how terry pratchett said in one of his books monstrous regiment the company of those seeking the truth is infinitely to be preferred than those who believe they have found it
1: ah, i love that i love that
0: and actually as you were saying that jason it reminds me of bertrand russell as well which i always love which says yes. the problem with the world is that the cocksure are full of confidence and the intelligent are full of doubt or something i've paraphrased that but the sentiment is there and yeah i feel that as well <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. It seems part and parcel. As your cognitive complexity increases, so too does your epistemological humility. Like you just know, the more you know, the more you don't know. And such is the curse of us uh, philosophers. uh, (laughs) We do tend to err towards. Humility. Um, what's the cocksure get out yeah, there? That's yeah,
0: that's it. the bloody cocksure. <laughs> and we know who they are, don't we? We've seen them, <laughs> we've right. seen them on LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, I yes. can solve things oh, in there. seven yeah. steps, three ways, 10 tips.
1: Yep. Oh. Five minutes. I always laugh when I introduce my book and I say, Look, here's the theory behind a, yeah, a business book. You have a framework, follow my framework. All your problems will be solved. Okay, so we. Uh, and I said, well, that didn't work out so well. But anyway, this is how <laughs> And here's the first step. Now, next question: What big question are you wrestling with right now? Oh, oh gosh! So when I wrote my book, my business book,
2: how to lead a seven steps. Um, which is, uh, That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, these things are like Trojan horses, right? They help you slip past the cognitive gatekeepers of an enterprise and allow you to kind of weave your subversive magic. And the question, well, so in my first book, The Game Changer, I became enamored by the progress principle. And the heuristic is essentially that our motivation, our focus, our attention, our behavior will naturally gravitate to the things that provide the richest sense of progress. And so you see this play out in all sorts of dark patterns with the way that applications are designed, even just simple things where we'll often write down lists of things to do and tick things off that we've already done just so they get a sense of progress. We love seeing progress. We love knowing our efforts contribute to progress. The question that plagues me at the moment is, is this meaningful progress? <laughs> and the question is of what is meaningful progress is the, is the one that I wrestle with at the moment. Now, the best, you know, I've got frameworks around it, like meaningful progress is that which brings us closer to future relevance. What is future relevance? Well, you know, the academic says it's a state in which our activities disposition makes sense given the context that we find, but the the future is infinitely complex and uncertain. And so if we're going to be orientating towards relevance realization, we need to be curious and open and have an acuity for the the patterns, the attractors, the trends and, and where things are going and just try you know and then if we are to apply philosophy which is love of wisdom what is wisdom it's it's kind of my working definition although there's something crude about something being defined but wisdom is being able to kind of walk the path of least unnecessary suffering and so I don't know what any of these things are but it's the question that plagues me That's what I'm wrestling with I don't think I'll ever come to any conclusion with it it kind of keeps me up at night and um, I think I was happier before I started to <laughs> have this question in my life but there is something a little bit more i guess fulfilling about the fact that it's there
0: i think it's really interesting as well as you say that 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 is one of the things is you could be wrestling with a question for years and years and years because it just becomes this journey that you embark on and you get closer to to some you reveal some truth of it but it's a never-ending well it's a never-ending quest isn't it really in some regards it's uh yeah
2: yeah there's an infinite quality to but there is
0: a or can be an anxiety that comes with that, that you don't get to the end of it and go, right, done, and close the lid on that and move to then something else. But, yeah.
2: I think something that I and many of us probably need to do better at, and it's so naff, and it's been rendered naff by the LinkedIn thought leaders, is this, <laughs> the notion of gratitude. Because there is a constructive discontent component to progress if you're thinking about progress you're naturally creating a discrepancy between your current state and a desired future state and trying to track it along there and that is infinite there's always more that we can do there's always betterness that can be found and it's it's asymptotic you're never really going to reach it but periodically taking time this is where ritual or some sort of like having some enchanted pattern disrupts in your calendar i mean solstices and equinoxes and Coronations, or whatever you want to, you know, you can look for anything. Birthdays, they're, they're, they're opportunities for us to take pause and reflect, and and maybe even weave a little bit of gratitude in for where we are at um, in our own unfailing journey, journeys.
0: I love that. I'm scribbling notes furiously here, but I like the yeah, idea yeah. of there being. I, I, I feel I do. I feel like my IQ points have gone up a little <laughs> just in talking to you, Jason. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's nice. I feel very comfortable with you. Though.
0: But that that idea of cadence, I, I love that. That you have just got this uh, yes, continuous yes. journey and just get a cadence of celebration or gratitude, or because th- that's often what you're in teams, don't you? You just say, just stop, pause, take a moment to just recognise just what you've yes, just achieved. And that's Even the thing. Let's keep going.
2: Yeah. In in a functional team, yes, you do have that. I feel like so much of us are we're, we're fragmented now. We've got these we're isolated agents, um, particularly with, you know, this remote work and stuff. And there's a lot of there are a lot of qualities that we've kind of lost or forgotten, and need rekindling if we're going to be able to do this
1: well. And would you would you say that that pattern disruption comes from ancient times where we would have solstices and gatherings, and when the stars and the moons align, and we you know we run naked around a fire for three nights, <laughs> have a great time, and you know I'm saying that with all joy. That was uh, a great team building no.
0: conference, wasn't it, So I yeah. enjoyed that one. Uh, the, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, but it, it, so I guess that that's we're tapping into the earths and our own. Acadian rhythms, would you say that's part of that? I think so. I mean, we can easily get a little bit
2: too romantic as we, (laughs) you know, wax nostalgic about these imagined pasts. But there is something to be said about the attention economy, about the internet and its ability to kind of erode the boundaries between work life and home life, coupled with the increasing rampant expectations about people's availability and their time. It's just there's a lot that I feel like we're forgetting and Mm. that we're out of touch with. And there are just really simple things where we can resist the kind of relentless pull of late stage capitalism to just come back to ourselves and our friends and our families and and to the places in which we find ourselves. And I'm saying this to myself as a reminder, like I have to intentionally schedule in time to go for a hike. And I'm very lucky that my partner, Kim, encourages me to do this because otherwise, you know, I can get lost in work and because I find it fascinating but it's good to have these intentional disruptions to our normal patterns so that we can return and remember and rekindle connection, enchantment, curiosity, wonder, all of those things.
1: Now, I've been waiting to ask this question, uh, this this whole little dinner party. This will uh, finish our, our, our dinner party uh, or oh, the first round, first course off. Thank you for how, the wine. How, yeah, you're welcome, you're welcome. Great Tasmanian wine. So how would you describe what you do and or what are your intersections? And I'm getting more excited by asking this the more we talk. <laughs> oh, my gosh,
2: I squirm at this. I don't even know if I have a right answer. I would, I mean, my normal response is to sigh, to kind of let this, this kind of like lament escape from me as I do this deep sigh, um, as I attempt to kind of to, to grapple with what, what is it that I actually do. I know that I've come up with the term wizard simply because I don't, feel as comfortable with the term thought leader or expert or any of those things, given the state of the market, but wizard itself is like a, a kind of like there's a qualifier in the word, like it, it, etymologically it comes from wise, like it's a, there is something of that kind of pursuit of wizard. And, 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 you know, I'm a Dungeons and Dragons player, so like it, it says enough in, from an archetypical perspective for folks to get a sense of, okay, here's someone who's quite studious, spends a lot of time paying attention to patterns and reads things. And if we think about what magic is, you could consider magic to be phenomena that exist at a higher order of complexity beyond our ability to kind of reckon with. The phone works like magic for me. I don't know how it works, but, you know, mm-hmm. it works like magic. I can summon food to my door by other, <laughs> you know, cantrips that are encoded in. And so I guess I exist, you know, it's partly I'm, I'm a wizard, partly I'm a bard like yourself, Simon well, like both of you, there's an element of weaving enchantment and, you know, even in the event space, and I was having a joy watching your showreel, Simon, like the there, there is something about there's a room of people and latent potential within this room to kind of, it's hard to describe. You'd be attuned to energetic threads and it sounds woo, I know, but there is something about when you kind of get folks to, to kind of cohere at a higher order of complexity together, where new things are possible because of the magic that is woven within the room, because of what has been able to emerge. Like that, that is, there is something quite profound in that. Because what could easily just turn into yet another information session, where someone with like a dense PowerPoint presentation just delivers more information. There is something to be said about the magic of evoking and unearthing that collective genius from within the room. So that's also something that I participate in. So. Part time independent researcher slash wizard plus um, philosopher provocateur slash bard. You know, I guess my, they're my intersections plus trickster. <laughs> Um, and Jester. So uh, I guess
1: jesters tell truth to those in power. Sorry, I'm sorry, Jason. This, is a, this is a big roundabout. Roundabout. I, yeah. I haven't got
0: any more circles to put into your Venn diagram. Sorry, there's a ration on circles in a Venn uh, diagram. Oh, yeah, it's Okay. All
2: right. Fair enough. Well, th- so there you go. I'm mercurial, and I'm, I'm you know, as a bricolage, I I, I resist the attempts to categorise, much to my
1: business uh, my, it's, it's not a good business strategy don't anyone copy this it's just like a surrealist <laughs> surrealist icky kagi or something with uh you know some melting clocks and some sideways some bird's eye view some crawling up the wall it's a and the a yeah. pastiche that just
2: the yeah yeah exactly i don't know what i do i just like to hope that i evoke some sort of enchantment in whatever it is that i do
0: So Jason, the Occupational Philosophers, this was born out of a desire to explore the interplay between curiosity and creativity and imagination with philosophy thrown in. So as a philosopher provocateur, we're keen to find out more about what you do and also some of your thoughts around some questions we thought might be useful to explore with you. So to begin with, I'm very intrigued by your desire to help teams and organizations generate curious conversations for meaningful progress, which you mentioned earlier. And I think you put that in juxtaposition against delusional progress. And that sounds absolutely spot on what, you know, we as occupational philosophers are keen to do. So the question is, it took a long time to get there.
1: <laughs> you'll, what, you'll get there, drum roll.
0: What, what keeps organizations, <laughs> what keeps organizations in a state of delusion?
2: It's a combination of, I mean, the progress principle, which I mentioned before, the fact that our motivation, our attention, our focus, our behavior naturally gravitates to the things that provide the richest sense of progress. These are often the default things with well-established feedback loops. They're easy to measure. They're easy to replicate. And so there's a natural gravitational pull that they have because if people are feeling anxious, which is what happens when we're in complexity and ambiguity and uncertainty and uncharted territory, it's natural that folks tend to favor quick fixes, familiar solutions, and default ways of doing things. And if we combine this with ramping expectations about people's um, productivity and availability and so on, we end up with this kind of grind culture where people are constantly signaling, virtue signaling that work is happening instead of actually doing the work. And this is perpetuated and you know, LinkedIn. We see that naturally everyone wants a virtue signal that they're hardworking and not necessarily questioning the strategy or leadership. We're just kind of doing the thing. And I just think that then therefore the need is people become too busy to think. They become too busy for meaningful progress. And I think part of our role is to disrupt that pattern and then create little pockets, little havens where we might liberate time from activities that could be considered a delusion of progress so we might kind of unearth and evoke the more important questions so that we might ensure that we move closer to future relevance and not wake up one day to realize that all of our hard work has led us to a point where we're no longer relevant.
0: Mm. Is that the, the, um, the too busy to think thing? I think that's one of the things that I would see. You'd see that with teams. They get yeah, lost in doing and then that curiosity sort of withers away a little doesn't it because as you say they because curiosity needs a bit of space doesn't it
1: yeah With some
2: air time yeah. yeah it definitely does and you know so what happens is either thinking is outsourced to external consulting firms which are also full of busy people or we have these kind of weird hackathons where you have people brainstorming and in inverted commas and it's almost like a competition where you end up with this set of ideas that's then voted upon as to what's the best idea, which idea wins. And that's not how curiosity works. Like curiosity, it does require space. It requires time. Like I've said, questing is the precursor to strategy, but fellowship is the precursor to questing. We need to create environments of kinship, of of seniors, of collective genius, of fellowship, of of camaraderie and good cheer where there is time for ideas to percolate, where it's more than okay to be wrong, to hazard thoughts and to, to kind of work in that messy alchemy of like people just actively curious and engaged and asking them questions and then somehow stumbling upon worthy avenues that are worth experimenting and exploring.
1: And I think that piece around stumbling is something I, I talk around a lot, will say, I don't know where this will end for everyone. I'd love to say if we do this, this will happen, which is where we get uncomfortable. Well, what what are you here for if you don't know where it ends? But because you stumble and the stumble is different every time. Like you might fall sideways, yeah. you might stumble up, you might stumble down, you might, you know, roll over and look at the sky. Yeah, you know, and that that's joy is there is is that what we need to do? A little more stumble, a little more joy in the stumble, is it or?
2: Oh, totally. It, it's, uh, Alan Watts uh, says uh, he is has, has saying that the way reveals the way. And the only way for the way to reveal the way is if you're kind of on the way if that makes sense. And it's amazing to me how many leaders, leaders, just how uncomfortable they are with these spaces of generative ambiguity. There's a the spaces that you know. I, I imagine that we would all hold well, where we don't. We're not kind of working to kind of a predetermined outcome that we want to collapse the possibility space into. We're genuinely creating a space where we can have emergent conversation, where we can stumble across the miraculous, like the, the kind of the ideas that, like, where did that come from? The the epiphanies that kind of could potentially be the hinge of history, like the catalyst for whole new ways of thinking and working. but it only becomes from that space of emergence. And that means that we need to willingly step into a space of ambiguity where we just don't know what we don't know and we don't know where it's going to go. And that's where the magic lies.
1: Oh, I love that. And this concept of magic, isn't it? Like, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, hard, maybe a hard concept to sell. (laughs) <laughs> when everything's based on data hey let's let's look for the yeah, magic yeah <laughs> totally totally yeah i gotta be careful with that word but yeah as you
0: were saying earlier jason what is your opening salvo to the cognitive gatekeepers when you go into an organization do you lead in with something that is more familiar to them
2: oh, totally, yeah totally yeah that is exactly the strategy so yeah we need to win over the most skeptical cynical people in the room when they're and they are there they're there with their arms folded they you know oh, yeah. what is this motivational speak, come to tell me how to live my life. Yes, yeah, so they very real. And so it's probably potentially the first 40 to 60% of my, my work is in warming up and winning over the skeptical folks. And their skepticism is warranted because there is so much bullshit in this space. There is so much pseudoscience, charismatic distractions that we need to actually just put out those fires before they begin so that we can arrive at a space where everyone is warm and willing to
1: engage. And I maybe use the example of um, having spent a lot of time working in art galleries and around the world. And when people look at something abstract, and always laugh, the the, the Aussie male—they've been dragged there with their, let's say, their their partner for this. And uh, there's maybe two of them together. There are a couple of guys, a couple of girls for this example. The two blokes—they sit there, their arms fold, and they go, "What's this shit?" Then, all right, and then I could do that. I could do it for a <laughs> yeah. million dollars and storm off. So. This one, I'm, I'm really fascinated with, with your work because the work you do is at, at a level, a really high level of, uh, I guess, yeah, you take people out there. So what's part of that? I want to dive in a little bit more to that, that bridge between something which is magic, wizardry, quests. How do you go from that, you know, I've got a job, I do it, you know, informed by data or whatever that may be. There's some polarities and tensions here to take people on your journey. Yeah. So, I mean, within the constraints of a 60 minute keynote,
2: there's only so much that can be done. It's more propagation, planting the seeds after giving them a good intellectual spanking and kind of (laughs) rousing up the the kind of the the cynics in the room. We can then, you know, it's usually sharing of subversive language. So even just having folks aware of the delusion of progress as distinct from meaningful progress is enough of a question seed that is left with them. I think that the magic in my experience that kind of by the, that I mean the emergent phenomena really happens on offsites. When an offsite is done well, a genuinely good leadership offsite, I've, I've done a few of these online that they, they can work very well online, but there's something so powerful about people together outside of the normal context and that the charm comes through the second night. You know, we've burned through the first night with all social anxiety. The first day is hard work. Then we have a dinner, but we're breaking bread, we're having the wine together, and there is something in that twilight and the, the conversations late at the bar or by the fire or the walks outside, something profound can happen there if we've created the conditions for that to emerge. And then the next morning, of course, we can consolidate st- that stuff. But like, that's kind of where to me I see it.
0: And on that note, Jason, because by the time, and again, my lexicon is expanding enormously. I love the idea of an intellectual spanking. Um, the yeah. <laughs> presumably, presumably, <laughs> <laughs> presumably, as you say, you create that environment. I mean, as they've come with you on a journey through, say, through day one, sort of the evening of before day one through day one, they are thinking in a different way. They they reach for different language, I suppose, when they come to those fireside chats at the end of day two on the second evening, because you've then exposed them to something different. They've slowed down. They have different language. They have different metaphors, etc. And so that must enrich those conversations as well.
2: Yes. Again, if it's done well, I mean, so an offsite begins before we begin, you know, it's in the priming, it's uh, the letter that goes out to folks before they arrive, the question that they're pondering upon arrival. But then even on the first day, you know, people are swept up in their own anxieties. So we need to kind of make them feel welcome and comfortable and disarm them. If they, you know, a lot of people need, well, of course, we all need to feel seen and heard. And so it's, it's quite something quite special about creating a space where genuinely people are seen and heard and welcomed and feel warm and safe and that sense of camaraderie. And then sometimes it means that in, during the day we need to go to the abyss, we need to actually unearth the, the thing that we're pretending to not know, the tension between the two seemingly toxic personalities within the leadership team that's causing all sorts of like subversive tension That can be exercised and then the kind of the catharsis that happens on the other side there the kind of the revelation because we're all simply insecure people doing our best with the resources that we've got just trying to make things work you know if we can arrive at that special sacred place where the the bonds are kind of re-knit and reforged and we we kind of see each other as the complex beings that we are just whole worlds of new possibilities can open but if we don't have those opportunities to to go there these things can just fester beneath the surface as we distract ourselves with relentless busyness.
0: This this again, it is fascinating, but you didn't put exorcist in your Venn diagram earlier on your intersections, <laughs> but I'm going <laughs> I did pick
1: up on that, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those words, easier to write than just, sorry, exorcist. we're
2: going to exercise. you are get the yoga people we're just wanting to do 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. yoga, but yeah.
1: I'm going to flip in from another way because uh, I picked up on the you're talking around when you're crafting one of your talks or a keynote. We can uh, say it is part of your creative process. You spoke around this notion of anti-fragile brooding. So I'm really keen to understand a little bit more about that and where, if doubt is part, which I think has come up already, doubt and ambiguity is part of creating something magical. Yeah, yeah. So there's a great quote from Nassim Taleb, who wrote
2: the book Anti-Fragile: Things That Gain from Disorder. He says that curiosity is anti-fragile. Our attempts to satiate it only amplify it further. So anti-fragility is distinct from fragility. If a f- fragile thing's exposed to a stressor, it gets weaker. A robust thing stays the same, An anti-fragile thing gets better. The curiosity is one of these cursed things. Those of us that have curiosity, it, we have a question. It just leads to a better question, and so on, and it becomes voracious and all-consuming. And I love it. We all do. But if we think about the four riders of the apocalypse—death, famine, war, and conquest—was it something? I think something like that. I think there are four riders of something. I don't know what to call it. Not apocalypse. Where you have curiosity and doubt—they're all their siblings—and uh, wonder and awe. And if you think about this as like a, a kind of like a, a group of four, you know, riders, doubt has a really important role. Like I worry with this brooding thing. I find confidence if you kind of got a ready fluence. If you kind of thinking just snaps into place around a particular idea, there's part of me, at least a part of me that I think is alive in all philosophers, academics, researchers. That just like hang on, hang on, is, it, is this is this is clicking into place too easy? What are we missing? What are the other perspectives here? How might this not necessarily be true? And that's just the gateway for new curiosity. And so, yeah, I do like to spend time in doubt. Perhaps I spend a little bit too much time in doubt. And um, yeah, it baffles me how some people somehow seem to find such confidence for their claims. But I think there is something wholesome about um, about just allowing time for doubt, not seeing doubt in a bad light. It's just it's just useful into um, in kind of as a gateway for curiosity as a sibling to curiosity
1: now on this creative journey because you know we all like i know john writes i've you know traditionally come from a fine arts background so i find my you know creative flow and uh you're a a mishmash of ikikagi on acid or whatever we might want to call it (laughs) so all these wonderful things are coming together (laughs) is there a moment with all of this stuff where you find people find their creative flow or is there a pinnacle where you, you reach that spot and you either change your mind about creative not creative when you get into a space where you find a flow i find that the um so flow is definitely a
2: part of it and that's probably one of the things that's that's so hard for folks because of the amount of uh, distractions disruptions in our day it's very hard we don't tend to like if we think about the work of curiosity um what it looks like it doesn't look like you're doing work it looks like you're going for long walks having conversations with folks outside of your industry reading books it looks like you're wasting time and so from a business lens it's kind of hard for curiosity to flourish unless you're a founder or have an, an executive with the amount of influence and budget that allows you the luxury to do so but you know when it comes to creativity i mean even the, the transformation I, I see it as exists at the superposition between creativity and destruction and there is something about the kind of the journey with its flow there is something there are parts, yeah, it's, it's hard, It's a language that I'm not well versed in and because I'm in it at the moment. If there is To truly dedicate to yourself to the process, you kind of emerge change. I'm a very different person from who I was when I wrote my first book and even since the previous book, and that's hard. It's, it's tricky to surmount the obstacle of who you have been versus who you ought to become in order to kind of serve the muse or whatever is alive in you or whatever you're feeling yourself called to. So, yeah, flow is definitely part of it. And I think that there is also some deeper forces that, yeah. I mean, from a psychological perspective, people talk about this in adult development, this notion of positive disintegration, where your sense of identity and self may be coherent for a period of time. And so everything kind of makes sense. But then some people experience a death close to them or disaster, divorce, um, displacement, or something that's ontologically destabilizing enough for them to lose that sense of integrity, and that the temptations are just to regress to a previous state, to numb yourself a distraction, to to kind of not do the the work of, of working through whatever this is happening. But the work of working through, you kind of emerge more complexly integrated, if that makes sense. You kind of subsume the experiences, and it takes you to a place of, I would suggest, greater wisdom knowing that wisdom itself is a nebulous and potentially dangerous topic to kind of define, but there is something about integrating one's experience all through the journey. Sorry, I've taken us on a very deep mm-hmm. turn there, but yeah. No,
1: it's, it's I'd say it's all deep, yes, <laughs> in a very, very good way, in a very, very good way. Now... Doctor Wizard, I will call you for this. It is time for a thought experiment. And look, as, as you know, as you in your own studies, I'm sure you would have discovered that, you know, throughout time, philosophers uh, have been, you know, conducting thought experiments to stretch the mind and connect new synapses and, you know, gather wisdom in the world around them and stretch their brain. So this one is a little thought experiment. This is called philosophy or philosophy. Now, here's what we'd like you to do. We're going to read out a quote, and you need to tell us is it philosophy. By maybe a philosopher or philosophy, maybe by you know someone else. Now you get a point if you can guess philosophy or philosophy correctly, and another point if you can guess who the person was. So there's possible. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. There's possible twelve points here. Okay, so John, do you want to kick off the first one? Yes.
0: Okay. So the first one here is, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Is that? <laughs> is that philosophy or philosophy
2: oh, I, I, I like I mean yeah that sounds like philosophy but I, I do like fools I mean how wonderful and thank goodness we've got fools so yeah I'm gonna call that a philosophy that's a
0: point there there's a point do you want an extra point could you guess who actually gave us that pearl of wisdom
2: ah oh, this is my this is my Achilles heel I am
1: I am terrible with names um so I'm not sure let's go I'll give you a clues uh, an American uh, country and western singer female country and western singer uh, and also movie oh. movie star
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh okay I'm gonna pass right. she doesn't
0: she she doesn't just do a nine-to five job she's uh, got her hands in many things there's another go okay.
1: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so disinterested in people. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> well, sorry, Dolly Parton. You're uh, no-one. So by Dolly Parton. Okay, right. You know, okay, okay. Now, there we go. And okay. next one is, <laughs> Good work. you can discover <laughs> right. more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Is that philosophy or philosophy? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's philosophy too. I mean, conversation is play as well. I mean, if you're doing it well. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: So you went philosophy yeah. or philosophy? Yeah, fool, fool. Wow, well, foolish. Sorry, Plato, you've been called a fool. That was actually <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. Oh, Plato, yeah, move over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Plato's later years.
2: Sorry.
0: there's a new philosopher in town.
1: Right, yeah. that's, right. that's right. You're a fool. All yeah. right, John. Next one.
0: A good idea is a good idea forever.
2: Oh no way! That's a, that's that's more philosophy. All it right.
0: is Idea that. philosophy, <laughs> that's absolutely right. So ding, yeah. that's another point. Any guesses is okay. who it is. This might be a bit quite obscure. I can give you some, I can give you some clues. Um, it's the kind of thing you might hear in the office, you know, at work.
2: Ah, oh, what, Ricky Gervais? Yeah. Uh, oh yes. Very close. very close. Like David Brent? Yes, yes. David, David Brent, yes. Brent. yeah. Actually, there we go. Right. Okay, that's right. great. That's, oh, there we go, yeah. thank you for the hints. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so
1: yeah. now, next one. Uh, philosophy or philosophy she carries sweetly infectious magic formulas i'm so delirious is she that serious oh this is this
2: is hardcore philosophy right um no i'm kidding, I'm kidding. this is more philosophy i mean it sounds like lyrics from a song i mean and You're very kind of good philosophy i'm not a, i'm not like a, a stickler for this stuff philosophy kind of emerges in unexpected places so it can be a vehicle and it, maybe it hits people at a particular time yeah. but yeah
1: so this is that is it is philosophy now this is by a singer and the song was actually called love philosophy so if you can guess that uk singer early 2000s sort of bit of funky how would you describe this person john sort of funk very high chart topping wore very cool hats
0: very cool hats big big hats big big sort of yeah with
2: no, I, yeah. I don't know, but I'm reminded of Esmeralda Svalding, who has like amazing. She plays bass while singing, um, but she she wouldn't say <laughs> this.
1: This is Jamiroquai, If you going to remember Jamiroquai, love philosophy. Oh so, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, that's great. I did like Jamiroquai. Yeah,
1: nice. And you see yeah, what we did there. Love philosophy. We build it into the answer. Now, I'd John. See it. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Right, next one. Um, Very clever. So, well done.
0: After lighting a lamp in broad daylight, this person said. I am looking for a man. And when asked why he was doing this, he replied, to practice being rejected.
2: Oh, okay. I thought this was almost Diogenes, but uh, with the barrel and the, the lantern. But um, is it like, I thought There was he, his quote was to kind of find a virtuous man or like a,
1: uh or something like that uh, i might be confused here uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna give it to you yes because it is diogenes and he I, I was reading he could have said find a virtuous man or to find a man there's a few different pieces so yes we'll give that to oh, you Yes, yeah, okay. so uh no, now, you philosophy Thank or philosophy oh, oh. for diogenes yeah. then. For those at home who may oh, not yeah, know Diogenes, yes. I'll, oh. say, I'll give a philosophy. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is a yeah. philosopher from ancient Greece and yeah, he was it's, it's awesome. known as yeah. the uh, the Socrates gone mad, he's uh, apparently. Yeah, because, yeah,
2: yeah, he was, he was
1: good. Okay, That's our a last good. One. one. Good role model. Our last one. Yeah. I'm an early bird and I'm a night owl, so I'm wise and I have worms. Is that <laughs> philosophy or philosophy? Sounds like philosophy for me. Like they're trying. <laughs> they, <you're laughs> they're right. trying. You're right. Now, this is philosophy, and it's from a TV character closely related to uh, David Brent. Oh. But maybe in another continent. Uh,
0: On the other side of the pond, as we would
2: say. Oh, right. Is that the American version of The yes. Office Leader? I can't remember. Yes, it. and it if, I can, if you can get uh, the name, you will have uh, done oh, very, very well. I know the guy. I, I appreciate him as an actor. Um, but I, yeah, I'm a, I very much like the UK version. I haven't watched the US
1: version. Uh, um, oh, so I don't know. Sorry. Uh, that oh, is I Michael Scott, but, who is the version of David uh, Brent in the US Office. And yes, that thought yes, experiment well. was called Philosophy or philosophy.
0: So, Jason, as a not-so-serious business podcast, uh, we're always looking to distill all of this lovely wisdom and insight into some things that uh, listeners can take away from themselves, whether that's as individual solopreneurs or members of a team, or whether they are part of a team and within a bigger organization, or leaders as well. So, First question is, what can we do as solopreneurs or as individual members of a team to keep that spirit of curiosity and a desire to quest alive?
2: I think that we need to have regular catch-ups with like-minded folks. Not like-minded in terms of they think the same as me, but they have a similar disposition. So folks that are curious, their curiosity eclipses their conviction. And if you can have sessions akin to being in, like an intellectual speakeasy salon, coffeehouse vibe, you know, where you're, you're comparing notes about, you know, asking each other the questions you're asking yourselves. Uh, that, I think, is a really vital ingredient. Um, personally, I'm, I have that tomorrow evening with a few friends of mine we are going to go to the pub and uh, intentionally just to talk ideas, what's emerging. And I think that if we don't have that, oh, gosh, you can get lost in a spiral of your own thinking or dark
1: patterns on the internet. So that is really key. And now it's very easy to become the king of the kingdom of your own skull, I heard someone say uh, the other day. And I (laughs) I like that that one there, Uh, meet with people who don't think the same but of a similar disposition because I always, I think that wraps it up. You've got the same energy, the same curiosity, same sort of zest for newness as uh, yourself. Now let's go on to teams. How can teams have more curious conversations rooted in empathy and or wonder or both? Well, I think that the notion of
2: teams, we we ought to cap it. Um, sometimes teams become too big and people don't even know who else is in their team. So I, when I think of teams, I think of crews. I think of like a squad vibe, you know, half a dozen folks, folks that can sit around the dinner table together. If it starts to get a bit beyond that, it gets a little bit unwieldy. And so within that closely knit, smaller unit, we do want to genuinely be checking in with each other. We want to be You know, I I like the notion that your workmates are your mates. You actually care for the people you work with. You see them as complex beings. You care for what's going on outside of the context of work too. And all of that then lends itself to rituals, ensuring that you have rituals, even if it's a long lunch once a month where you get together and you just Friday afternoon, um, 1.30 p.m. onwards, you have a long lunch and there's no meeting scheduled afterwards and you just take time to be with each other. I think that is key.
0: Is that um, the the empathy piece as well as um, you saying that it seems to get lost? I'm wonder. I'm curious as to why that empathy can sometimes disintegrate in teams. Because, and again, I, I take your point that sometimes the team gets too big and everyone just retreats into the classic silo. You know, and they're busy and they have they're incentivized to deliver within another team and they come together in this leadership team and actually they go well. I've got stuff to do over there. I'm, I'm, I haven't got time. I'm not interested. And the empathy just withers away again. But the thought there?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky thing because there's like a counterintuitive hurdle that uh, leaders need to surmount to get past this because the reality is the short, quick, easy thing to do is for everyone just to work harder. You know what you need to do. Just get on with it and bloody do it. But then in a larger organization, you start to have people reduce the complexity of other people within the team just to their roles. So you have like the dickheads in finance and the trolls <laughs> in HR and so on. And no one's really relating to each other as complex beings at a peer kinship level. It's instead just abstracted to their roles. And that's, that's unfortunate.
0: That's really fascinating. Uh, two thoughts I had there, uh, as you were saying that, uh, Jason, is just, yeah, we see it where you get tribalism and fear. And, and, yes, and yeah, that yeah. seemed to take root, and it comes back to as you were talking earlier about um, trying to engender fellowship before you go on this quest together. Almost is quite important, and that yeah. you could put, you could wrap fellowship could wrap so much together, couldn't it? It's as a, as a as something to yeah it, yeah to exactly create.
2: whatever word we want to call it kinship fellowship. We're trying to cultivate it here as the conditions for seniors, that collective genius. That can only happen if people can feel as though they can flourish. And flourishing can only happen if we all flourish. It can't happen at the expense of others. And so, yeah, so good intentionality ought to be invested into that domain if we want teams to have better conversations with curiosity and empathy.
1: Now, look, this leads us straight on to the next question. As a leader, how do we, we lead in this space? We've heard these, you know, uh, complexity, ambiguity, paradox, doubt, kinship, moments of ritual we need to put? How does, a, how does a lever lead? Gently
2: and deftly, with wit, like the ability to use associative knowledge, and a distaste, perhaps, for kind of the more conventional, traditional masculine archetypes of leadership that we've seen persist, that have served us well during industrial contexts where we have ordered complicated or clear domains. But when we're in a complex, open living system, the kind of more feminine elements of our leadership style ought to come about. And that means we're more focused on the relationships between different nodes rather than the performance of the nodes itself. And we want to kind of treat it like a garden. We tend to things, we cultivate things, we nurture things, rather than treating it like a machine where we're kind of trying to find things that need to be fixed or you know, where we become metric obsessed and we reduce the complexity just down to a few numbers that that may seem to serve us in the short term, but it leads to unintended consequences and can see us on, on a path towards irrelevance.
0: That's, um I mean, I'll often see that that you're trying to sort of improve the space in between people rather than the people sat around the table. you will sort of look to the. And of course, then you have all the nodes and it connects then in a multitude of ways that six people suddenly creates 36 different relationships or spaces to think about. We're
2: seeing the word mycelium get overused a little bit, but it's still an apt living metaphor, the kind of the fungal networks that connect between the trees and the communication that can happen along there. A lot of the things here that weave together a a team and it, it comes down to leaders having an acuity well, see, this is the other thing, is that uh, if we're leading amidst complexity, a, a good leader ought not be trained to see themselves as the charismatic hero in the story. Um, this is not about centering yourself or being the one with the fixes or the answers, but rather cultivating and tending to the conditions that allow for uh, solutions and meaningful progress to emerge. And so um, it kind of really challenges the conventional model that people seem to have in their heads of what a leader is and, and could be. I, I see it more as an agent that... Uh, is the kind of enabler of flourishing and coordination at higher orders of complexity.
0: So Jason, we've got um, another thought experiment. Um, this time, we've actually opened it up as a listeners' questions segment because we told our listeners that we had Jason Fox on the podcast, and we were absolutely inundated from turrets. from, from turrets. For, uh, with questions from people just wanting to drink from the fountain of wisdom attached to your brain. So, are you happy to be on? Un- agony uncle for five minutes and answer some of these is that would that be sure, okay sure, yeah. that's great okay well let's, let's just well, yes. let me just dip into the bag here i'll just pull out this first question here this is uh this is bob from dungog in new south wales hi there i'm going into the jungle on a four-week survival expedition i wondered with you being an ex-sas marine commander whether you had any tips on how to stay alive <laughs> with just a fire firelighter whistle and a fig leaf uh i don't know Oh. <laughs> like, oh god. Is this uh Oh, shit. I know what's <laughs> happened here. Yeah. This is this has gone wrong, it, isn't it? Yeah, it out it's, the, it's gone <laughs> wrong. It's the wrong, Fox. Yeah, it's yeah. The wrong yeah. bloody Jason That's Fox. Um, yeah, yeah, I do,
2: I do. Yeah, some people have said, oh, you look a lot different from your, <laughs> your photo. I'm, okay, I'm
0: I sorry, Jason. I, yeah. I just sometimes, the, the people do listen in, sometimes well, they just let us down. Yeah, our don't our don't audience, know? Sorry, it's Bob, the audience, yeah. isn't it? But I mean, do you but have any ideas? What would you suggest? What would you suggest for Bob, though? I mean, we should try and answer his questions.
1: He's got a fire lighter, whistle, and a fig leaf for four weeks. Oh, gosh. Okay.
2: Well, the fig leaf is very, it's a very obvious time from a philosopher perspective. So, first thing, I'd I'd strip naked, I'd put the fig leaf over your, your private parts. And then that's as far as I've got, really. I mean, Prometheus stole the (laughs) flame. Just quest from there, exactly. Just Just hold the lighter. Just quest, bro. Exactly. Oh my god, this is great. Yeah, that's right. Just just play the part. It's manifest. This is like enclosed. So, but the
0: key thing, though, Jason, would you blow the whistle?
2: Oh, that's the temptation, isn't it? I think that's what's going to keep you alive. Is that unanswered question? Like, do I blow the whistle? Like, um it might be some like you know in some myths there's like blowing the horn you know it kind of awakens the serpent the world serpent yeah. and so on and so you'd be standing there with your lighter and your fig leaf and just wondering what do i do
0: i think that's a good answer well, for both yeah. i think that's good
1: yeah yeah okay so i'm going to do another one here yeah. let me just open up my envelope yeah. right, here we go now from my, one of our international guests jason you have a magnificent beard how do you stop small animals, fairies, or even the odd gnome living in it? This is from Jennifer in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. Hola, Jennifer. Hey, Come on, start. Great, great question. Uh, wow. Yeah. At least she's got the right I mean, Jason. I mean, this it's time. really nice. It's, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it, yeah. It's exactly the other one ain't got. <laughs> yeah. I. You know the, the beard thing. Thank you. Um. I, I. I'm glad that it still seems to be a unique thing. I think there's too many hipsters with beards here where I live. Um. Oh, uh, you know, good beard oil. I attract way too much beard oil into my life because it becomes the, the go-to gift to give um someone who likes, who has a beard, who it's either coffee, whiskey or beard oil. Um, and there's only so much beard oil one person needs in their life. Um, so thank you to all that give me beard oil. I think it's what helps maintain its luster. Yeah. So, do, do you give it away oil. at
1: your speakeasies? So you can, hey friend a good answer there's you get been a... some
2: re <laughs> going on but it's it's a very specific gift isn't it you can't really just pass it off i couldn't give it to either of you at the moment um, <laughs> no no we're so, uh, very clean shaven mine uh, it's
1: mine it has is a...
2: funny it's funny that amongst my speaker friends there is a notion of speaker wine which is a uh, wine that you're gifted when you speak at events which is really lovely but it's often of a dubious vintage and more of a particularly if it's got a sponsor branding on the bottle you know it's not necessarily going to be that great so there's a there's kind of a pattern of us re-gifting it within
1: our, <laughs> our own community also known as your brother's christmas presents yeah have
0: you ever actually <laughs> got this have you got a <laughs> bottle back that you've gifted has it come full circle and come back to you A couple of years later, possibly
2: it probably becomes its own kind of currency in its own self. Just not (laughs) not, not very convenient (laughs) currency given the size of it. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's it's done its round. But actually, wine bottles have kind of gone on the nose a little bit because of um, I guess guess, uh, regulations around alcohol and so on. So now it's actually received a branded business card holder. So a business card holder, which I don't know when the last time I used business card, where it had uh, engraved onto the metal case the parent company who was hosting the conference that was a very thoughtful gift so that's probably the new that's the new wine bottle yeah all
1: right john we've got one
2: last question
0: one last
1: question yeah i'll read that out uh jason
0: i know you've met some real life drug dealers and bad people what would you advise someone who has to attend a party oh god this is they've got it wrong again haven't they this is what do i do (laughs) What do you advise someone who has that's to ask? the wrong. Uh, t- no, it's the wrong Jason that's Fox the wrong again. Fox. It's the wrong okay. Fox again. Okay,
1: right. This
0: is the one who, who did the life in the real narcos thing, wasn't it?
1: Curiosity yes. and empathy. Yeah, curiosity okay. and empathy. Ma- ma- yeah. Actually, no, I think Jason <laughs> might have some insight here, but different to yeah. Commando. Yeah, oh, well,
0: here we go. So if you had to attend that's a party right. with said dubious uh, drug dealers and bad people, what's a great conversation starter?
2: <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is me trying to be cool. I don't know. I don't start conversations. That's the thing. I, 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 I um, I, you know, you know, that, that meme of the, 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 dude with the skateboard and saying, what is up young people? Um, and so on, I'd, I'd be, I'd be trying to do some sort of like trying to act cool amongst all the gangsters. I'd be like, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Try to look weak and unassuming and uh, <laughs> kind of slightly pathetic and therefore you won't be a target. You know, they're, they're fragile alpha um, egos, like their masculine fragility is just you need to kind of dance lightly around that. And so if they can feel that they're in power, then, you know, everyone wins. Great
0: answer. There we well, go. Really, but, Another yeah. satisfied listener. Or
1: possibly, uh, you know, channeling um, uh, Jason here, you could say, hey, I've got some magic in my pocket want to try some (laughs) and uh yeah so shortly shortly
0: before before you get chucked overboard the ship or something like that yeah yeah that's right
1: totally totally pull that off yeah Uh, (laughs) well next time we do this we just hope we get the wrong jason but thank you for stepping into uh Uh, someone else's shoes (laughs) it seems and uh (laughs) playing with us okay we've come to close to the end of the podcast and we kick off with a a rapid fire what's one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at the moment oh my 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 journal and my favorite pen
0: (laughs) we are building the occupational philosophers manigesto. what one thing of all your learning do you think should be
2: included (laughs) Oh my god! I didn't know if that was a typo. I was like, "Well, yeah, you see I mean, what we did there." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you did there. <laughs> I, I'm just going to borrow from James Carr, the philosopher I admire. Um, he has a quote: "Finite players play within boundaries; infinite players play with boundaries." And I think that the imploration is to um, play with boundaries. Is there a book we should be reading? Oh, yeah, crap. I have conflated my answers. Yes. Finite and Infinite Games A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility by James Cass. Yeah, a wondrous book. I, I read it every year.
0: And is that, how do you spell that? Is that Cass as in?
2: It's James P. Cass, C A R S E. He also wrote the book The Religious Case Against Belief, in which he suggests that religions are more frameworks for curiosity, for us to be engaged in the bigger questions rather than a doctrine of easy answers.
1: And about religion, this is going off. that I was reading that all religions started with magic mushrooms this week, including Christianity. So uh, nice. that sort of, uh, <laughs> that sort of. Anyway, <laughs> have you heard the Bill Hicks
2: comedy piece that a young man on acid realised that all consciousness is merely self self subjective dreaming. We're all one consciousness and experiencing ourselves self subjectively. There's no such thing as death life is only a dream, and where the imagination is of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, John, our last one.
0: Yeah. All right. Our last question. So, uh, Jason, let's imagine project ourselves forward many, many years from now, as it were, the twilight years, and you're taken into your retirement home, and you're s- escorted by the nurse into the lounge, and all the other residents are sat there, and they look up expectantly, and the nurse says, "Everybody, here's Jason. He's
2: a Dionysian sex fiend." Um <laughs> um I bring the dynasty <laughs> god of wine and ritual madness into the space and um, Back by the time, yeah and i think that by the time i'm in retirement age sex bots should be well advanced so i think that these are going to be glorious places um,
1: yeah it's going to be it's going to be wild you yeah. <laughs> know
0: all I can say is, woohoo, bring watch, on retirement. Watch
1: out for yourself. Yeah. He will steal your sex spot. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's right. Put yeah. put a towel yeah. over okay. your hologram because he's looking at it. So yeah. That's right. I'm on the towel. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, Jason, what are you up to next?
2: <laughs> oh gosh. I am in the process of finding myself once again. I'm in the search for the enchantment that I once had. It's like I've become enamored by Web3 with what's happening there, but um, that's still such a nascent domain, mostly repugnant, but still some wonderful spaces that are happening there. I think I'm on this journey of kind of trying to woo back the muse, the muse into my life. I used to be able to write quite effortlessly and my next book has been in the process for several years. And so that's the attempt. is to woo the muse back into my life and to somehow make some meaningful progress towards my next, next book.
0: Excellent. And more broadly, Jason, where can we find you, connect with you, buy you drinks, be those virtual or otherwise?
2: Oh, um, foxwizard.com is, is where I've recently moved all my domains to. Um, I lost the search engine optimization battle to a, a celebrity soldier by the name of Jason Fox. Um, so now it's all at foxwizard.com. And uh, you can sign up to my newsletter and I actually have events here that I run once every Month or so here in Melbourne with a friend of mine, much similar to the partnership that the two of you have. I have a friend that uh, we just we jam well together, and we we host events, and then we go off to the brewery and um, have a pint and continue the conversation.
1: Yeah, and if you are in Melbourne, definitely. And we didn't have time to go there, but your fireside speakeasies and uh, some really, really, really cool things. And I think if you've got any inkling of what a great experience of connecting with people would be. This is something you need to experience. And then I think there would be so much you could actually take back to your organization and your own role around how people interact, mingle, share ideas. So yeah, there's, there's a whole nother chapter here. But so when he says I run events in Melbourne, these are not sort of uh, people sitting in a bright training room with a, plate of uh stale biscuits on the side <laughs> i'm just trying to get these are something you would love to do on the weekend that someone has framed with that is that a good way to say it <laughs> yeah, yeah thank you yeah that's yeah. lovely yeah that's, that's perfect so look jason it's been an absolute pleasure like and Every time we have a guest, every time we have a guest, the notes uh, are so long this end, but and just I'm making so many connections in my own head. And what you do is just so there's so many things I've I've taken from this in notes, and I'm literally got the, some of this uh, great content and ideas is going to go into my stuff tomorrow. And I've got a picture of the the Suicide Squad. Have you seen that movie? So um, the Suicide yes. Squad, and like they're they're all different, but they're all on that same. So they got that same energy. So I think it's a really nice <laughs> if you. You're working with me in the next few weeks watch out for the suicide squad metaphor so <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah uh, for me jason thank you so much it's been an absolute delight i've loved it i've been blown away by some of the ideas that you've discussed and explored with us today so thank you and yes if you ever find yourself well, in the uk come have a beer come have a, uh, I certainly will. a coffee and a, and a speakeasy
2: Oh, I love that. And, and from my perspective, thank you so much for being such generous, warm, and abundant hosts. The, the attention, the curiosity, the genuine care that you put into the crafting of the experience, and the, the ability to be wondrous dancing partners in this emergent space that you've held so elegantly, it's been an absolute joy for me, so thank you. All right, thank you. cheers. Thanks
0: for, the, thanks for that. What a fantastic guest, Simon yet again, the fantastic Mr. Fox or fantastic Dr. Fox, so much in there. I mean, I've, I found my sort of mind expanding <laughs> really, really quickly as I was just listening to him with his whole use of language and the way he would open up ideas and metaphors. It was quite incredible. Yeah,
1: really. And even though he might not like us saying this, it felt like being with a well of wisdom, if you know what I mean. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, there was just so much sort of thoughts and disparate pieces connected and you know, like the mycelium he spoke about, that that sort of connection of things he brings together, which we might not have put together. Yeah, wow. What a cool cat. Nice guy as well. Yeah, really really nice guy. guy.
0: And as ever, we'd like to tease out a few things that really stood out for us. Again, there's a lot to choose from, but what would it be for you, Simon? A couple of things that um, are takeaways for you?
1: Or oh, so many but the joy is bringing them down just a couple. I really like this idea of uh, meaningful progress like mm. and again how do we find that balance between progress doing the quick easy stuff and then something which is meaningful where we're not just ticking the list off to feel good about ourselves and you know often we'll you know rewrite stuff on the list if we've done it and we you know it wasn't on the list so we can <laughs> tick it off we've and say done we've it. done it myself included. Yeah, absolutely. Have so, you ever
0: have you ever had the tick box of right to do list? And then you tick that off.
1: Aha, uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. But uh, that's any spectrum. That's a delusion of the progress principle as well, where we always go to the measurable and the, you know what we can replicate quickly. But the magic is a little bit messier than that when we innovate and we do things differently. So I really like that idea of you know, meaningful progress, and I liked my own little way of thinking around bringing teams together but he sort of triggered it and that idea is because we often say you know, you want to be with people like yourself and then you also think oh hang on that could also be he said but people share the same spirit but don't think like you which for me is the, the movie the suicide squad you know <laughs> they have the same spirit they have the same energy they driven by different things but you know they all combine together and they don't even actually you know, like each other all of them but they all combine together to create something really amazing so i think that's that whole thing around you know we're all complex beings engender a little bit of fellowship, create your own suicide squad for one of a better name, but please Google the uh, please Google the movie if you're thinking, hey, what are they talking about? So yeah,
0: <laughs> it's not the kind of name you'd want to name your team in an organisation, is it?
1: You get no, reputation. not at all. So please Google Marvel movie Google for uh, <laughs> Google for reference. What about you, John?
0: Well. Uh... As you're gonna force me to pick just a couple. I was quite intrigued by his description of how he takes people on a bit of a journey when he does his keynotes, because we were saying, How do you how do you get people to join you exploring metaphors and getting philosophical? Because you can't just get them immediately there. They'll often come in with their business heads on and then you've got to yeah. to get them to a place.
1: Yeah, and noting that I would say Jason's content is quite out there but in a very philosophically sound way but you know what I mean yeah it's not it's not your average I stand at the front of the room and talk about productivity or,
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, like uh,
1: yeah um, and that's a compliment a massive compliment that's why I was so curious to know this so yeah, yeah but go on well go on.
0: And, and so in that regard I love the fact that he he would stand up and sort of prove his credibility or sort of establish a bit of the gravitas by just giving them a, a good intellectual spanking
1: <laughs> <laughs> And That is my so favorite word. uh, (laughs) Another hashtag on the way. (laughs) This T-shirt, this T-shirt merch collection is going to be And so
0: with that, and we all need a bit of intellectual spanking now and again, that he would then sort of take people into his world. And it would then start to have them think differently, be using different language. And then that led into the second thing, which is, and then organizations or teams surrendering to that idea of, let's just spend time together let's not just have half a day and rush back to the office or even a day and then call it you know c- you know conclude it all but have that extra day or that extra night and often the magic happens as he would call it in the fireside conversations you know at the dinner table after dinner sat in the lounge and i just thought it was really interesting that if you've taken people on a journey through the day and you've got them to think differently and are able to use different language, I bet those conversations are richer in the evening, and I, I bet they help people connect better. A bit more curiosity, a lot more empathy.
1: Also, he said the evening of day two. So yeah, think around this with your uh, your one day conference with the finishes with a bang, like. Imagine what's possible with an extra day, an extra evening, just with that cadence of the way people connect and, you know, find that fellowship, which I thought was a really well, nice Well, fellowship word. just
0: keeps making me think of Lord of the Rings and Legolas and and uh, Frodo and people like that. But, yeah, so I'll have that in mind every time I think of fellowship.
1: But, yeah, they are oh, you know, he's, he's a wizard, quest, so. aren't they?
0: Just hopefully not to Mordor. <laughs>
1: So look, look, there's so much, and look, uh, as we said, jump onto his website. It's a very, really, really interesting place to uh, look around as well. And but, John, I know you've uh, you've got a busy day off to be out and about in London, joining us even from a hotel room. So I'll let you get back to that. And look, as we always say, make sure, and I think, it couldn't be more true after this episode, uh, stay curious, have fun, play more, make stuff. But most importantly, always remember to eight like